podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Dr. Kimaron Hardin's work is a call to action for every member of the LGBT community to stand up and be proud of who you are. Through the compassionate voice of Dr. Hardin, this well-documented guide allows you to recognize your strengths, acknowledge your weaknesses, and become a stronger, more vital person. Growing up lesbian or gay in a heterocentric or homophobic culture presents many challenges to the development of a healthy self-concept. Dr. Hardin's work is about going beyond the intellectual resistance to early programming and incorporating a truly self-compassionate relationship to the identity we call the self. Valeria Tellez interviews Dr. Kimaron Hardin, the author of Loving Ourselves, The Gay and Lesbian Guide to Self-Esteem. Dr. Kimaron Hardin is a clinical psychologist and author specializing in working with people with chronic health issues, including stress, depression, and self-esteem issues. He is licensed in California and is board certified in clinical health psychology. In addition to working with patients to achieve optimal mind-body health, he also has a passion for helping people in the LGBTQ community overcome internalized social stigma that lead to self-sabotage. Using a combination of cognitive, behavioral, and existential techniques, he hopes to help clients see themselves more honestly and compassionately, thereby leading to better choices across all walks of life and a fundamentally healthier self-concept. With over 30 years of clinical and personal experience, he hopes to help create change and healing from within each of his clients and readers. Meet Dr. Kimron at KimronHarden.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Kimron Hardin. In your own words, who is Dr. Kimron Hardin? Well, I would say I'm a human being first, and uh, probably psychologist is pretty far down on the list. I'm a gay man uh, raised in the South in the United States, and uh, my experiences inform my work. What is healing to you? Healing from a holistic perspective to me is learning to take care of your mind and your body and your spirit, your soul, all of that. And I find that sometimes people have a partial sense of how to take care of themselves, but not a complete sense. So true. In in your book, I found very interesting the um, your definition of spirituality. You say, for me, spirituality includes my personal search for answers to questions about my purpose, the existence of a higher power, 
and the rules of the universe. Speaking of spirituality, why do so many of us choose not to engage with anything even called spiritual? Well, I think sometimes people are taught to equate um, religion with spirituality. And, you know, some people do find spiritual um, sides of themselves through organized religion, but it's also been used in a very toxic way at times. And so people become fearful of anything that resembles religion if it's been harmful to them in the past. How do we learn to um, overcome, let's say, the hurt and the pain caused by those religious people who have tried to change the way we see ourselves, Cameron? Well, I would always start with just letting people acknowledge the pain, first of all, have some validity to what they've experienced. And a lot of times people have been shamed for saying this doesn't fit me or this doesn't work for me. Um, And they've been forced into sometimes complying with things that just don't fit or feel right. So I always start with, let's just talk about it, let you sit with it, feel it, no judgment. And that's that's where we always start. And even that word, non-judgment, that idea, that practice, in a way, it sounds to me already as a spiritual practice, not just a therapy, right? Yes, exactly. You you can't really separate different parts of a human being, you know, and you're right, it is. So in your book, you talk a lot about self-esteem. So self-compassion is another component. This idea, the self-concept, self-respect. Your book's titled Beautifully Loving Ourselves, The Gay and Lesbian Guide to Self-Esteem. How is self-esteem different from self-confidence and self-concept? You know, uh, self-esteem is defined in many different ways according to who's defining it. For me, self-esteem is a core sense of love and respect for oneself, um, even in our imperfections. And it guides our decisions about how we take care of ourselves and how we live our lives. And self-confidence is sort of a belief about your ability to handle whatever life, you know, tends to throw at you. So subtle differences, but, you know, they definitely are related. Also, a question that I usually ask, not all of my guests, but some of them, unconditional self-love. Do you think it's uh, realistic to pursue something like that? Well, can we ever fully achieve it? Yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not really sure that that's possible. Um, I I call myself a lifer, meaning that it's gonna. It's. it's I'm gonna spend the rest yeah. of my life trying to love myself unconditionally, and I just want to make clear that doesn't mean that I, you know, eat ice cream and mm-hmm. you know just watch TV all day. Um, unconditional love also means really taking care of myself um, with activity and exercise and good nutrition and things like that. And I don't always make the best choices, I'll say that, (laughs) but I still try to love myself. (laughs) 
So it is that trying, right? I love that idea of doing something, even regardless of what could happen. We are just uh, making an effort, taking responsibility, choosing. Yes. It's easier sometimes for people to think about the love that they give to maybe their children or other people they love unconditionally. And how even when they make mistakes, you still love them and you you really try to support them versus punish and criticize. I think I asked a mother one day here, do you love your children unconditionally? And then she said, yes. And then I asked her if she loved herself unconditionally and she said, no. Mm-hmm. So that made me wonder if it is possible to love anything unconditionally before you love yourself? That's a really good question. And I agree that people can have degrees of um, unconditional love, not just, it's not just one monolithic thing, right? Um, Maybe we can practice it more effectively towards someone else, especially a child who's innocent. But it's much more difficult when you have layers of old negative programming uh, incorporated into your self-concept to apply it, you know. Yeah, that's where the work is really necessary to unlearn or to, what would you say, to replace those belief systems, Cameron? Yeah, how does it work with the self-talk and self-belief? Um, good question. I follow a uh, model uh, in my practice called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And it focuses specifically on recognizing old patterns of thinking that we learned a long, long time ago that maybe they were actually useful to help us survive in certain situations, but, but now they actually are harmful and maybe even sabotaging. And so learning to uncover these repetitive uh, critical negative thoughts about ourselves uh, is really important to beginning to to replace it, like you said, and and replace it not just with words but with a feeling. Um, and that's the part where sometimes cognitive therapy uh, falls short. There's, is it doesn't talk about developing and cultivating a sense of actual love and respect for yourself and kindness more than just replacing words. What do you think is the purpose of the human experience? Oh, that's a, that's a deep question. The purpose of the human experience is, I think, to try to live uh, with as much joy and as much happiness as we can achieve. Because as we do that individually, it spreads um, into the world around us. And allows other people to also, I think, live happier and more joyful lives. Being more joyful. For some reason, we have lost the way to joy. I totally agree. And that's why the search, as you implied earlier, begins with you addressing some of the demons that we have from our past around ourselves. The criticism and the sometimes even abuse that we put onto ourselves and living a more peaceful, calm, joyful life will actually benefit mankind. What are the biggest misunderstandings about gays and lesbians from your perspective? 
I grew up in a time when um, there was very sort of limited science and limited understanding. And uh, there's this social stigma that remains in many parts of our world that gay and lesbians are abnormal, that we are um, uh, effectively uh, either sinners choosing, you know, to live, uh, you know, uh, a non sort of righteous life or that we are somehow mentally ill. And uh, my message has always been to my clients and myself uh, is that you are perfectly normal as you are. One thing I usually say all the time here on the podcast is that it's so clear if we human beings look closer and deeper into life itself, nature. Nature, it's so different, but it's so perfect. It's so imperfect, but so perfect at the same time. I completely agree. Yes. Right. So I'm wondering why we human beings choose to see life differently from a much more destructive point of view? I think um, fear is at the bottom of a lot of need to categorize and uh, rank, you know, the value of humans or the the goodness of humans. And um, it, it, I guess it's a natural response to the unknown, to try to understand, but it can lead to also very dark places. Um, I don't believe that any baby is born with any more value than any other baby. Uh, And it takes a lot of training to teach someone that they actually have less value. Oh, wow. And it's very sad. It's very sad. In a way, you're saying that we are actually being trained and being programmed to act and live in an unnatural way. Absolutely. And with um, unnatural beliefs about ourselves, um, you know, the, our, our concept of ourself is a social construct, meaning that um, we aren't born with a sense of self. It comes from a reflection of the love and the unfortunate neglect and abuse that we receive, right? So who we believe we are is a reflection of how we're treated. It takes sometimes so long, a lot of suffering and in a long time to unlearn and undo these traumas. It has been my case too. That's why I say I'm a lifer because, you know, this is going to be a process for the rest of my life, continuing to unlearn and and teach myself new ways of looking at myself. And I'm okay with that. So do you believe that one day we might come to the point of completely unlearning and becoming free? That leads me to the question, what is freedom to you? Freedom to me is choice. Um, It's being able to choose what messaging you incorporate into your identity. I'm also not just a cognitive behavioral therapist, but I also am strongly influenced by existential therapy which boils down to having a choice um, in how you respond to things, in, in the language that you use with yourself. Just, But a lot of us don't really understand that. We don't understand that we do have a choice and we don't have to repeat these old automatic 
negative um, self-statements that in an unquestioning way. Freedom is being able to say, I have a choice. A lot of things have happened this year, uh, 2020. So at this time, in this moment, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And also, do you have a vision for a new reality? I think that people um, have forgotten in this time of crisis um, how to be empathic. And I wish that we had more opportunity to train children, for example, to, you know, put on the uh, experience of someone else and listen. And I actually think in the U.S., um, I'd love to see some type of reconciliation um, commission that could bring people together to talk about their fears and their similarities and their differences so that they could develop more empathy and healing. In your book, you have the messages, the, the sections where you talk about all kinds of messages that we receive from different sources. I'll get to that in a moment. But before that, let me ask you this question. How did you become a writer, Cameron? You know, that's a good question. I think that um, I grew up feeling like my voice was not being heard and uh, writing was a way to get my voice out there in maybe a different way. Um, it's funny because when I was growing up, I thought to myself, one day I'm going to write a book. I had no idea about what kind of book or <laughs> how, to, how, how to go about it. But I just knew that I wanted to write a book. And I realized now that was the part of me that felt small and, and inconsequential that really wanted to reach out to other people who were suffering and feeling alone and really connecting in that way with other people. So that, that's what led me to writing. So talk to me about the inspiration and the intention of writing your book, Loving Ourselves. The inspiration, again, was, you know, growing up in a very sort of uh, conservative, rigid upbringing community. A family and feeling um, alone, feeling uh, less than, feeling damaged. Once I started to get move away from that and challenge some of those messages and learn to have a better relationship with myself, I just felt an incredible passion to reach out to other, especially young people who who were feeling very alone. And I thought, well, a book is kind of a way at the time, a book was the best way, you know, to try to reach someone who might be in a small town, rural area, uh, isolated family, um, so that they would feel less alone. I love hearing from people who have read the book and they're in a similar situation to what I grew up with. And they write and say, wow, thank you. I really connected. This helps me start my journey, you know, and that just, it's really empowering and healing for me personally. Why did you choose to become a psychologist? I've always been a listener and I guess I've always had sort of a gentleness that attracted people to me, um, even before I became a professional. And 
learning in my college classes about the mind and behavior. And it was such an essential part of my own healing and recovery. Um, it was so natural. I didn't really even question why um, I wanted to know more and more and more and more. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, that was the that was the way to continue to grow and learn personally. And it's been and just an incredible profession. I'm really thankful that I ended up, you know, in this profession. In your book, you say thoughts, they lead to feelings and feelings lead to behaviors. And we often use the word emotions too. Do you connect emotions to feelings? Are they the same in a way? I tend to use them um, interchangeably. Um, You know, um, I would say emotions might be more raw um, version of a feeling. A feeling can be um, affected by thoughts that could be a result of old programming. You know, so if um, we say to ourselves, I'm just really terrible at math, and then you feel, you know, afraid of going into a math class or you feel really sad about that ability, but but it's based on an untruth, then, you know, it's a, a feeling that we can actually change. Emotions to me are a little more raw uh, based on uh, reactions to experiences that we have in the moment. So how do we learn to recognize those negative patterns that we all have at times? It's not just in our lives, but sometimes the daily thing. So how do we learn to recognize that? I always uh, encourage my clients to listen to their feelings because usually your feelings are what you pay attention to first. And when you feel a shift in your uh, emotions, you feel angry or you feel sad or you feel confused, that means that your thoughts have shifted and that's there's something that you're saying to yourself about a situation or about a memory or experience. And then, you know, with practice, you get better at saying, what did I just think about? Or what did I just say to myself before my feeling shifted? Um, Initially, you know, it it takes a little effort, but then you get better and better at it. And before you know it, you can, in the moment, recognize that your thinking has gone in a direction that's not helpful, and you can challenge it and actually in the moment replace it and feel the emotion or the feeling shift uh, based on changing your thinking. I usually tend myself to use more intuition than thinking. But this is also tricky because we need to know the difference between thoughts and old patterns and intuition and also imagination. Do you use any techniques that would teach your clients to know the difference? between them? Well, I think that meditation can be very useful, especially mindfulness meditation, right? Um, where you practice sitting with uh, non-judgment about your inner experiences. And over time, um, you, you can recognize uh, a feeling, you can recognize thoughts that are around the feeling, and um, you then the, the idea of choice comes in where you can choose which thoughts 
you're going to give power to and which thoughts you're going to allow to just sort of pass through. A lot of people don't realize that they have this power to sit with experiences, um, not not judge in the moment, and um, be able to evaluate, I guess, or focus more on, am I saying something to myself that is healthy and accurate, or am I saying something that is uh, a product of old learning that's not useful and maybe not even true. So meditation, I think, is one of the most beneficial tools for learning to uh, differentiate these different experiences. About the messages that you speak in your book, different kinds of messages that we receive, but especially gay and lesbians and from different sources. So from all these sources, which one do you think is the most powerful one, the one that affects us the most? Well, um, I would say our caregivers, um, the people that, you know, tend to our needs um, that we uh, rely on when you're an infant and depend on as a toddler and a child and a teenager. And, you know, children um, tend to believe the caregivers um, without question. We haven't learned yet how to critically evaluate the information that they're giving us. So we assume that it's correct. And therefore, if our parents have antiquated or unhealthy ideas about LGBTQ or about being a woman or about being, you know, a person of color or whatever, then they transmit that very easily to the child. It sounds to me like we need some sort of um, transformation, some revolution to change the way we think, because it's everywhere. We see that you mentioned the media, culture, religion, schools, uh, workplace. It's everywhere, um, this way of thinking. And when you're very young, you just don't have the ability to sort out what is accurate and what is misinformation. So you just take it like a sponge mm, and you, you, you absorb it and it becomes part of how you view yourself. And unfortunately, you can come away from that with very negative self-reflections um, and self-esteem, right? Um, and then that, that impacts every choice you make for the rest of your life. And I'm wondering what propels us to be open, to change the way we think. Unfortunately, I think it's often suffering that propels people to, to evaluate the systems that they have in place, at least the ones that come into therapy with me. Um, it's because they're at a level of unhappiness or dissatisfaction that they, that they crave change. Um, so... There is a role for sort of the yin-yang of life. There's a role for suffering sometimes to prompt us to look at things and evaluate them more carefully and begin to change them. Talk to me for a moment about the connection between low self-esteem or low self-worth and suicide. Well, you know, I think it's probably obvious to most people that if your thoughts are consistently negative about your worth, 
and about your value, then uh, your thoughts are going to more easily go to, then why exist? Why should I even be here if I'm a burden on people, if I don't really have anything to offer other people? Um, and it's a, it's a big problem, even still with LGBTQ children and adolescents who feel like, you know, I'm a problem, I'm defective, I'm not worthy the way that I am. So I, it, it's, it's easier for me to just not exist than create all of this drama and tension. Very sad. Would you say that what's happening now, it's somehow leading us to better ways of thinking and some sort of uh, positive transformation collectively? I absolutely would like to believe that that is the case. Um, I learned a long time ago to try to reserve my own judgment about um, when things happen that I don't expect or my first interpretation is that this is bad um, because those moments when I look back on my life inevitably have led to a change in direction and I believe led me to where I am today. And I'm, I'm very grateful for where I am today. So now it's hard in the moment when you feel uh, the, the momentary suffering to think that anything good could come of this. But I really um, try my best to hold in my mind that this may create change uh, that is absolutely needed. And I believe socially that we are um, changing through the COVID, through our political system and our, our um, you know, black or white thinking and um, dichotomy. I think it, we're learning and we will be changing because of it in a good direction. I would like to talk to you for a moment about forgiveness. How do you teach forgiveness? Is forgiveness a moment of understanding or a practice, a process? I believe that forgiveness is a process. I don't believe that it is a a one-time um, event, especially when you've been hurt or you've been harmed, perhaps in a chronic way. That's not something that with intellectual awareness or understanding that you can just say the words, I forgive, and it happens. It is a layered process like an onion, right? You Today, forgiveness is different than forgiveness might be in 10 years from now. But it, but it is a freeing process to begin to allow the anger from the hurt that you experienced to dissipate. You know, you, you're entitled to always protect yourself. So forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget and that you allow harm to occur to you again. But it's more of a way of releasing something that, you know, has been impacting you in perhaps a negative way for a while. I love those words too. Self-compassion and self-acceptance. There's a lot of power in those words. Self-acceptance, for some reason, really attracts me a lot. Would you say that that is perhaps one of the most important practices to engage in, in accepting ourselves just the way we are, at least for today, for this moment? Absolutely. I tell you, a majority of my uh, work with my clients is along self-acceptance uh, lines, um, trying to help people 
stop so much internal criticism and judgment and accepting themselves as complex human beings with, you know, the, the strengths and the weaknesses that all human beings have. It's essential. So we're almost at the end. I have a few more questions here for you. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, you know, I was just thinking about the uh, idea of imperfection. And in, in the book, I talk a little bit about um, I see ourselves as part of a tapestry. If you look at a tapestry very closely, you see that it's made up of different fibers and different threads of different thicknesses and thinnesses and colors and textures. And it, the beauty of the entire tapestry is based on the fact that there's so many individual elements to it. And I, I, I wish people could see themselves in their unique beauty as part of a larger you know, universe uh, tapestry. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? The hardest lesson to learn about myself was that I did not deserve some of the experiences that um, occurred to me as a child. I believed uh, cognitively or mentally um, that I didn't deserve it much sooner than I believed it emotionally and at my core. And I'm not sure that I will ever 100% believe, you know, uh, that I didn't deserve those things, but I'm working on it. I work on it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My next question is about success. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? Success to me is um, having um, love and uh, community. Um, people around me that uh, bring me happiness and, you know, just satisfaction with the life that I have. Um, I, uh, I certainly was tempted at one point to define success in a superficial way, but I've realized, you know, as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, that it's much more about connection and about feeling loved and loving. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I try to live as if that's going to occur um, at any moment. I probably would um, make one more effort to reach out to everyone that has meaning to me in my life and let them know um, how important they've been to me. I want everyone in my life to know that. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? I know that um, taking care of ourselves is absolutely essential uh, across physical and emotional and spiritual. Um, I know that uh, giving to others is um, also uh, necessary, having a purpose you know, is essential. And I know that uh, life happens on life's terms and it's easier to accept life as it happens than it is to try to change it. Thank you so much for your genuine presence, for sharing your wisdom, 
for your message, your mission. Thank you so much, Dr. Cameron. Thank you. I do have one last question. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, my website is www.kimmerinharden.com. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Kimron Harden and his work, please visit kimronharden.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.